Friends, as you're taking your seats, let me invite you to our, uh, turn to our sermon text in Matthew chapter 17. You can find our reading on page 822 of the Pew Bibles there in front of you. And while you're turning there, let me tell you uh, something you're going to find there. <clears throat> and I don't want this to throw you off, uh, so we're going to mention it now. But I promise you ahead of time that I will get to it later as well. But some of you may notice that verse 21 is missing. At least if you have an English Standard Version or a New International Version or something like that. And I want to tell you that our bulletin is not, does not have a typo. That your Bible doesn't have a typo. And this grand mystery shall be revealed in the fullness of time later on, okay? So I promise I'll get there. Uh, but to, to whet your appetite, I will tell you that the best evidence we have is that verse 21 is a scribal edition, which is just a duplicate from Mark 9, where Mark tells the same story, okay? So your Bible is true, and you can have certain confidence in it uh, because uh, we know where this edition came from. As I said, we'll get to it uh, a little later on, but let me read for us from Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. Beloved friends, hear now the living and active word of God. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often he falls into water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Indeed, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let us pray now that we would be nourished this morning by it. Our Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would instill its truths by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we would have Christ, that we would know Christ, that we would glorify Christ, and that we would rest in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. In high school, I had the privilege uh, of going uh, with a, a team uh, with Mission to the World to uh, missionary work down in Peru. Uh, and it, was a, uh, it was a good time. It was a fun time. Uh, I uh, got to do a lot of different things. I got to meet a lot of different people. It was primarily uh, a construction trip. We went and we built a second half to a health clinic uh, that the church plant there was using to meet the material and health needs of the people uh, there in Cusco. But the the number one thing that I remember most from that trip is uh, the feeling I had when I got home. I got home and I felt empty. I spent a a week doing a a bunch of things, uh, being exhausted, sleeping like I'd never had before, right? It's pretty impressive as a teenager. But I, I was saturated in the word. I was saturated by my team. We had a a prayer chair even to go and sit and pray over the work, pray for the people. 
And I come home, and it's the same old bed, the same old house, the same old life, the same 5.15 alarm tomorrow for school. I think that we might feel something like that this morning as we come down the Mount of Transfiguration. As uh, Pastor Sean mentioned last week, there is the mountain high and the valley low. And I want to show you that real life has ups and downs. And this is one of them. That it's hard to get back to reality. It's difficult to come down off the mountain. But I want us to think of the mountain of transfiguration today. I want us to understand that if you go uh, to Mark or Luke, as they tell the story of the transfiguration, the story we just read about the boy with the demon and the seizures is always connected to it. And so while most of us know the story of the transfiguration, many of us disconnect these, but we shouldn't. We should feel a sense of emptiness of desire to go back up the mountain, to go back up and be in God's presence. But the reality is that real life is always waiting for us. The reality is that the Christian life is not about extraordinary actions. It's not about the miraculous. It's not about the glory shining bright It's about ordinary faith in real life. That's the reality. That's the reality that you feel and experience every single week. That's the reality all Christians since the ascension of Christ have dealt with. A sense of emptiness after a certain time. As we have to inevitably come back down the mountain. But let me encourage you that that's a good thing. That it's a good thing that the Christian life is not about the extraordinary, but about the ordinary. Because it shows us that God cares not just about extraordinary things, not just about extraordinary people, but about the ordinary. And in fact, I think, I believe this text shows us that he even prioritizes it in the life of the Christian so first, friends, let's consider the fact that ordinary faith is weakened by real life. It's weakened by real life. Have you ever bought something new? Maybe like a car or a, a new gadget or a, a, a new uh, thing to camp with. We're in the mountains. What, what would that be? Outdoor equipment, right? Have you ever bought something new and, and you get home and you, you unwrap it and you look at it and you're like, man, I can't wait to use this. And you go out onto the trail. You go out into real life. And what do you do? You baby it, right? Oh, it can't get scratched. It can't get beat up. I don't want it to be dented, right? And then you hear your child open the back door and hear crunch, right? Real life beats things up. It beats people up. It beats up ordinary faith. It puts dents and scratches in it. And the worst thing that we could do with simple, ordinary faith in Jesus Christ is baby it, is not use it, is try and protect it from real life. Look at the father of this boy who has a demon 
Look at what real life has done to his faith. His son has seizures, which is bad enough as it is. But reportedly, he he seizes and, and begins to suffer because of the seizure by falling into fire and being unable to get up, unable to even react to the pain. The demon is is tormenting the boy by showing him, you don't have control over your life. I can do whatever I want to you. You can imagine how this father might hear something falling into water. As so often his son begins to seize again and falls into water and begins to drown. This is a brutal picture of real life, isn't it? It's a, it's a picture uh, that shows us <clears throat> that for, for this man's life, unless something is done, unless somebody can help him, for the rest of his life, he will have to do everything he can to protect his son, to ensure that the seizure doesn't happen near fire or water or something dangerous. And for years and years, this man has had to put up with this. How often, if you were in his shoes, would you ask this question? Oh, my Lord, why? Why? You can imagine, why would you do this to my son? Why would you do this to the one that I love so much, the one that I cherish constantly, never knowing is today the day that he's going to burn himself so badly that he won't make it? Is today the day I don't hear him fall into the water and there's no one there to take him and lift him out again? I don't think it takes a a stretch of our imagination to hear the desperation in the man's voice as he comes to Christ. As the reality of life is hitting him and his family hard. But let me show you something else. This is why we need this passage connected to the transfiguration. Look again at the beginning of the passage. And when they came to the crowd, where were they just before this? Well, if you go back up to verse 9, you'll notice they're coming down the mountain. And so they're off the mountain and they're coming to the crowd where the rest of the disciples would have been. And as soon as they get there, the man drops to his knees. And he tells Jesus that even his disciples could not heal his son. This is an added layer of desperation that's not immediately seen. You see, the man comes to find Jesus and he's not there. He's not there. While Peter is making this outlandish suggestion to to build temples for Moses and Elijah and Jesus on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, here is a man whose life is in tatters. And he goes, finally, after he hears this guy, Jesus, can heal people. He goes and he goes to where he's been told he is and he's not there. He's missing. Don't worry, the disciples say. Don't worry. Back in Matthew 10, you remember, they've been given the authority to exercise demons. The, the, The demons can be cast out by the disciples in Jesus' name. And so the man's hope is probably elevated a bit, right? 
and then they fail. Now we'll get to the why later. But stick with the Father for a moment. Don't worry. Jesus told us that we have authority over demons. We can do this. And they fail. The best chance that he thinks he has for his son just evaporates before his very eyes. But then Jesus comes. Then Jesus descends down the mountain. Then he comes and he does what's necessary. He does what is good. He brings healing and restoration. But don't neglect, don't skip over that moment. Because that's the moment we experience so often. That we go and, and we go and seek out Jesus because of the, the wearing down, the scratches and the dents on us and on our faith such that real life almost wants to, to, to snuff it out, to grind it into dust and to blow it into the wind. Why would you believe in Jesus? He can't even help your son. Why would you believe in Jesus? Your parents don't. Your friends don't. Your children don't. Why would you believe in Jesus? You've got a bill in your mailbox that you can't pay. Did he give you a check too? Why would you believe in Jesus? Are you just not very smart? Are you foolish? To believe a book written by how many people? How many years ago? Why would you believe these words? This is what real life presents you with, friends. Nothing but antagonism. Provocation. And sometimes it's big. Sometimes it's like the father who has this massive issue right before his very eyes. My son is sick and there's nothing I can do about it. But sometimes it's like a death by a thousand cuts. It's just one thing after another. That's nothing really big by itself. But when you combine all of it together, suddenly you start asking the same question the father may have asked. Lord, why would you do this to my son? Lord, why would you do this to me? Friends, our reality is that faith, ordinary, simple faith in Jesus Christ has enemies on every side. Such that we will, if we haven't already, we will find ourselves at some point in our lives asking real Good questions. And I don't want to discourage you. I don't want to discourage you from asking those questions. I think it's healthy at times and in places to ask those questions. What I want you to know, though, is that your experience is true. That your life is not kind to your faith. And it's coming for it. 
It wants to wreck it, destroy it, and grind it completely and totally into nothing. But God has provided something. He's provided an antidote. He's provided for the weakness of faith that is ground down by real life. So secondly, see that ordinary faith is strengthened in Christ. That Christ comes and he strengthens faith. This seems like an obvious point. Maybe it is. I hope it is. But dwell on it for a moment more. Dwell on it in this way. Because real life is both unavoidable and unfriendly to your faith. And Christ comes to provide a strengthening for you. He comes to tell you that the things of this life are nothing in comparison to him. Indeed, may Jesus Christ be praised. Jesus comes and he lifts up people. He lifts up those who confess their faith, whether big or small, in him. Jesus loves the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. He loves to lift up those who are ground down and wounded by real life. Friends, it's no accident that the imagery that plays out in this story is God descending down to this father. That's not an accident. It's the gospel before his very eyes. It's the gospel literally playing out in the life of this father that God in the form of Jesus Christ, in the likeness of human flesh, comes down to him so that he can get on his knees and plead with God himself for mercy. No more disciples. No more intermediaries. One man who is God and his name is Christ. And what does Jesus do? Right? This beautiful picture is on display. The father's hopes that it had just been dashed suddenly come alive again with the view of Christ as he descends down to him and Jesus opens his mouth and he sucks all the air out of the room. Oh, faithless and twisted people. There it is again. Why? Why would Jesus say this? Why would a rebuke happen? I think, I, I genuinely believe this can be, at first, incredibly disorienting, right? Like, how many of you, in, in the wounds of real life, want me to tell you, go pray to Jesus, go find your strength in Jesus, so he can tell you, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How does that strengthen faith? Why would he say this? Why would he rebuke it? Why would he rebuke this generation? Well, we need to examine the details, okay? We need to examine the details. First, I want to show you that Jesus' words are not just at the Father. He doesn't say, oh, faithless and twisted man. He doesn't look up at the nine disciples that didn't go up the mountain and say, oh, twisted and faithless disciples. He says, oh, twisted and faithless generation." 
It's aimed at everyone there. And it's Jesus asking, I think, a prophetic question. What more do I need to do? What else do I need to say? Before you start understanding. Before you start believing. And this is an important thing for Jesus to do because there's this connection. Don't disconnect the transfiguration. Connect them again in your minds. Who was Jesus just with at the top of the mountain? Moses and Elijah. Moses, who went up a mountain and communed in the presence of God. And when he came down, what did he find? A nation that was faithless and twisted, worshiping an idol. Elijah, who worked the incredible miracle, right, uh, 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 on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And then in 1 Kings 19, what happens? His life is threatened. He's going to be killed. The nation is turning against him. They're sticking with the Baals. And so where does Elijah go? Up a mountain to make his case against Israel in the presence of God. Jesus utters the same thing they did. Jesus experiences the same thing they did. In fact, it's significantly worse. Moses and Elijah, they're just men. They're just prophets. But the better Moses and the better Elijah, God in the flesh, comes down and is met with the same message from a worse generation. How many times have the Pharisees and scribes come and said, well, just give us a sign. Give us a sign. Prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. And so, friends, I I want you to see if you're wounded by real life, when you're wounded by real life, that Jesus' words here, they're not impatience. They're not anger. They're not even really, you know, Jesus being fed up. They're Jesus' prophetic utterance and rebuke of a lack of faith. Not of an ordinary faith that is ground down, but of an ordinary faith that is apparently non-existent. That it's just not there. And so rather than being disorienting, friends, I think it should be the thing we should expect the most to come out of Jesus' mouth. It's the prophecy that we read of throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus himself comes and experiences what every other generation has given the prophets of God. A rejection. A lack of faith. And here's where the other gospels come in and really help us. Because at this point we have in Mark chapter 9 those famous words of, that we all know. That come from the mouth of this father. He looks at Jesus and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. The father was not turned away. The father was not embarrassed. The father was not so provoked as to say, well, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus guy. He is met with the reality of a lack of faith. And so he confesses faith. Christ comes and he lifts the man up. He lifts him up and and he helps his unbelief. 
And so Jesus calls for the boy and he heals him instantly. In fact, Matthew's version is just so great. He just says it and then doesn't even miss a beat. He says, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here. It's not a rejection of the boy. It's not a rejection of the father. It's not a rejection of you. It's Jesus coming in and providing strength for faith. And it's only after our faith is addressed. This is so key. It's only after faith is addressed that Jesus works the miracle. And this is where we we begin to understand that miracles, the extraordinary things, they don't strengthen faith. They confirm that that faith is well-placed, but they don't strengthen it. Only Christ strengthens faith that is worn down and grind down by real life. His rebuke was not designed to embarrass or inflict any sort of pain, but rather designed to get a specific effect, the effect of repentance and belief. The problem is we, many, many of us, come to this text and we're so used to reality beating at us that when we read Jesus' words, we sort of read him through those same lenses. But instead, what's going on is that Jesus is being gracious to say something hard, something true, and something good. And through that prophetic proclamation, the Spirit brings faith in the hearts and in the minds of the hearers. Friends, God doesn't give us extraordinary things. Today, He doesn't give us powers like superheroes. He doesn't imbue us with anything that really uh, sort of sets us significantly apart from the rest of the world. Because he knows that that would not strengthen faith. He knows what the world does. And so he gives us ordinary things for our ordinary faith. He gives us an ordinary book. With ordinary words. He gives us an ordinary table with ordinary elements, things that we eat and take for granted all the time in every other circumstance. He gives us water, the most ordinary thing for human life. And only by faith, through these ordinary things, then can we have the extraordinary Savior. Can we have Christ? And it is through these ordinary things that he strengthens our faith. But there's a reason for this. right? It's not an end in a, of itself. Christ strengthens the faith of his people for a purpose. And so finally see that ordinary strength, or excuse me, ordinary faith is strengthened to persist, to go on, to move forward. This is the moment you've been waiting for. Why did the disciples fail? Why could they not cast out the demon? And to answer this, we need to talk about verse 21. We need to talk about the footnote, uh, perhaps in your, in your Bible. 
We need to, to sort of connect these stories of the other gospels together to get a full picture. Because Matthew's version of this story doesn't just confuse me and you. Apparently it confused a scribe somewhere. So he thought, maybe I need to add an explanation. And I want to show you that he wasn't wrong in his explanation. He was wrong to put it there. But he wasn't wrong in his explanation. Okay? And the explanation is that they didn't pray, apparently. Now, you'd think in, in casting out demons by the power of Christ, maybe one of the first things you'd do is pray. Apparently not. Apparently, the, the disciples <clears throat> tried once, and it didn't work. And so they gave up. They tried it. Because Jesus told them that they could, and when it didn't work, they threw their hands up and said, Oh, well, not this time. I don't know what the problem is. Sorry. Compare that to another example. The example of the prophet Elisha. Who hears from the Shunammite woman that her son has died. And he sends uh, his servant with his staff that he's worked a bunch of miracles with. He sends him a ahead of him. You remember this story? And he goes into the, to, uh, the servant goes in and he, he touches him with the staff. And it doesn't work. The boy is still dead. So Elisha gives up, right? No, in fact. He doesn't. He goes in and he lays on top of the boy, face to face, hands to hands, feet to feet. And he gets up. Doesn't work. So he does it again, gets up, doesn't work. He does it a third time, doesn't work. At this point, he gives up, right? No. What does Elisha do? He got on his knees and he prayed. He bowed before the Lord and asked God to do this work. And the boy lived. The issue with the disciples' faith is that it was not persistent. It did not keep going. It met failure and it stopped. It met opposition and it stopped. It met real life and it gave up. But a, a faith strengthened by Christ is a faith that persists, that doesn't give up, that keeps going, that acknowledges, verse 20, that nothing will be impossible for you. That the issue isn't a little bit of faith, and there are super Christians out there with a lot of bit of faith, and your issue is that your faith was really small. And, and uh, uh, Peter's faith and John's faith, their faith was really, really big. And that's why they got to come up the mountain with me. That's not the problem. Look again with me <clears throat> at verse 20. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, which Jesus has already called the smallest of seeds, even if you have something just a very tiny, but properly and firmly placed in Christ, you can move mountains if you keep trying, if you keep going. 
All the time in Matthew we see that there's a lack of faith leading to a lack of confirming miracles because miracles, as we've said, don't strengthen faith. They don't bring faith. So if there's no faith, why, why do the miracle? But notice here there is a miracle because faith is strengthened, even just a little bit, even just a mustard seed. Even that is enough. And so, friends, the challenge here, the challenge for us, the, the, the way in which Christ calls us to exercise our faith is by taking something even so small, surrounded by doubts, surrounded by enemies, surrounded by provocation, surrounded by antagonism, and he blossoms it for us to go and do things. That's the challenge that we have today. To, to say with the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. And here's how Jesus helps your unbelief, by calling you to action, by calling you to move mountains. Not literally. Okay? First of all, don't do that because the mountains here are beautiful. Leave them alone. All right. But second of all, that, that's not what he means. He means this. That through your ordinary faith and your ordinary reading of the scriptures and your ordinary uh, uh, partaking in the ordinary means of his grace, <clears throat> as we learned in Sunday school, dead people can come back to life. Unbelievers in your life can and will come to faith in Christ. That he will use you to do the impossible. He will use you to do things that you can't even begin to imagine. How many of you know stories? Just, just stories of people, of church planters, asking, hey, there's this building and it costs $16 million and I need it in 30 days. Right? I've got a story for you of a church planter in Oxford uh, in the United Kingdom who within a matter of weeks had millions and millions of pounds because he asked people to pray. How many of you have stories over and over and over again of God's faithfulness when faith persists? Friends, real life is going to grind at you. It's going to scratch you. It's going to wound you. It's going to dent you. For the rest of your life. It is unavoidable. But Christ stands ready to strengthen your faith. He stands there ready to help your unbelief. And he will continue to be gracious to you. He will continue to call you into stronger and stronger faith. By Comforting you with soft words and jolting you awake with harsh ones. And in both instances, he is faithful. And so, if you find yourself today, if you find yourself in this place, worn down and almost at nothing, running on fumes because your sun keeps falling into fire and water, and there's nothing you can do about it, 
because you're not sure what's going to come next. You're not sure what's happening next. You're not confident in your job or in your ability to, to continue to weather this storm. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. He won't necessarily give you everything you need for this life. He won't extraordinarily open the heavens and pour down gold upon you. But he will give you something better, something ordinary, something lasting, a faith that endures your life and that will bring you into the next. Indeed, let us confess to Christ today. We believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you're so good and gracious to us in Christ. Even to say things we don't want to hear that seem surprising to us. But herein we find the goodness of Christ. Herein we find your faithfulness. Your desire to strengthen our faith that we would persist and make it to the last day. And so, Lord, indeed, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief by your word, by prayer, by the, the mutual accountability and edification of the saints. Help our ordinary faith through ordinary things and remove from us a desire for the extraordinary until Christ comes again and shows us his face. We ask it.